we get to talk about our new series, uh, Killing You Softly, Reviving You Boldly, because I thought, you know what would be more fun to talk about than sin, right? Uh, yeah. This is, uh, I think it's going to be a, a great uh, series as we go through that um, now, as we talk about sin, uh, just to let you know, no, we're not, um, we talk about the de- seven deadly sins. Uh, no, we're not talking about going back into Catholicism and believing that if we die committing these sins, that there's no forgiveness. Uh, there's not, we don't make a differentiation between the deadly sins and the vernal sins, the ones that are, you know, only a, a minor offense to God. I think all sins are pretty much awful and deadly. Uh, but these are particular sins that, um, that the church has recognized for years that are insidious and destructive. And, and they cause all kinds of, of pain in our lives, in our world. Oftentimes, uh, we don't even know that that's, these are the cause of them. So that's why we want to talk about them. But not only just show them what these, these sins are, but the cure. Now, how Christ has overcome, there's an amazing amount of hope that we have in Scripture that talks about what God has done and how he overcomes these. It's just amazing things. So I'm excited to get there. Today we're going to talk about pride. And so our, uh, our memory verse comes from Proverbs 16, 18. And it's a good one. It says, pride goes before destruction, a haughty spirit before a fall. This is a, a definitely a different kind of um, look at pride. Um, in fact, oftentimes in uh, in our lives, that pride is typically seen as a good thing uh, in this world. And so we're going to talk about um, how do we address pride, why is it bad, and then we're going to talk about some of the ways that God has helps us overcome it in the, in the pattern that we have. Now, as we go into this series, one of the things I want to warn us against, anytime that we go into the Bible and we look at something like sin, there's this tendency for us to look at other people and to see that sin on them, right? And the Bible causes, there's a condition called plank eye that Jesus talks about. And it says, you know, you have a speck in your brother's eye and you're walking around with a big old board sticking out of your own. That's kind of silly. This whole series is an introspective one. Uh, if you're nudging the person next to you and you're like, this is for you, you missed it. Right? Let the Holy Spirit be inside of you, nudging you in the areas where you need to listen and to hear. Okay? Let's be aware of that first. That God wants, he cares enough for you to help you. And that's why he's given you his Holy Spirit. So let's listen to the way that God has for us and realize that there's also going to be, when we talk about sin, there's this uncomfortable portion whenever we realize that we've strayed from the path or something like this. There's this feeling that we get. And it uh, feels like conviction, right? This, um, another way, when you are convicted of a crime, you are guilty, right? And so we sense that this, this you might sense as we go through these, a sense of guilt, right? Guilt is like that little alarm on your car that tells you you need to buy gas, Okay? When that, that thing comes on, it tells you something's wrong, right? You, you need to make a change. You've got to do something or else bad things will happen. Okay? When you ignore that little gas gauge on your car and you just keep on driving, then you have problems, right? And so we don't get mad when the gas gauge comes on at the, at the light. We might get mad that we have to do something, but don't get mad at the light. The idea is it empowers you to make a better choice. So if we go through this process and you're sensing guilt, it doesn't mean that God hates you or anything else. It means that there's scripture and the Holy Spirit cares for you enough that says the way that we're living right now is leading to destruction and there's a better way. So there's another feeling that some people get and it's, it's this one is not from God and it's called shame. Uh, when sometimes we feel convicted by something, the Holy Spirit allows us to feel like, oh man, I need to make a, a change. And all of a sudden, the enemy comes into our life and says, that's right, and you'll never be better, and there's no good for you, and God hates you, right? Shame. I've got to hide this. God doesn't work like that. All right, the Word of God, it actually comes in, it's like a spotlight. It shows us in the areas that says where it's wrong in our lives so that we can straighten them out. Realize this, whenever we are guilty, God is always there to forgive and to give us help. 
That's what the Holy Spirit does. But we have to bring those things when we feel guilt, not hide them in shame and say, oh, I got to pretend I'm not this way. No, when we start to feel guilt, instead of going to shame, what we need to do is go to repentance. And that takes courage. And I know it does. Trust me, I've been studying these passages for months now, and God has been giving me a lot of opportunity to see a lot of the ways that I've fallen short. And I know there's this tendency where we say, I want to make pretend that I'm perfect, but get this, this is wonderful, God knows you're not perfect, and he still chose you. He knows exactly who you are. He already knows that you struggle with these things, and he still loves you. He already chose you. If we, get, if we open the word and it shows us something wrong in our life, the only reason that God is allowing that to happen is so that we can turn to him and he will cure you. And it's the most cool thing ever. It's amazing how he'll start changing from the inside out. So as we start with this, let, let's begin with realizing that there's going to be some feelings that you may get. That's normal. That's okay. It's what we do with them. Don't take any conviction and put it into that shame basket. Right? God loves you. He already knows you. He's called you to great things. Instead, let's go the other way and let's turn that guilt and say, God, okay, I'm, I'm, I have fallen short. I need you and he will take you and he will forgive and he'll do amazing things. So let's, let's go with that. All right, so let's talk about pride. Pride is something that is, that is valued in our culture a lot, actually. And so when we talk about pride and, and, and saying it's a seven deadly sin, we talk about it being a deadly thing, it's, it, it's a mental disconnect for most of us because normally we associate good things with pride, don't we? I mean, typically, and I think part of that is because um, a lot of things get bound up together in this whole concept that shouldn't be. One of the ways that we often lift up pride in our culture is, is uh, for accomplishments, right? Like, um, we actually, it's, it's a sense of pleasure. Like, uh, I don't know if you've ever gotten a trophy, but like maybe you bowled like a 300 in bowling or something like that, and you're like, hey, look what I did, right? You should wear the t-shirt, this is not saying that don't wear the t-shirt, right? There's a certain amount of pleasure in the fact that when we do something good, God wants us to enjoy that. So when we say you take pride in that thing, that's not what we're talking about. Uh, another way is a job well done. Like if I just nail a sermon, right, at the end of the day, I'm like, boom, yes. Typically, those are the sermons that no one else appreciates, right? But, but if I got it, right, if I did something, maybe at work you did something amazing, you got awesome, whatever it is you do, you did it amazing, right? You could take pride in this. I did this well, right? That's not the kind of pride that we're talking about. Is, is, actually, that's a good thing. Scripture talks about in, in our life that we should, uh, we, we should take some satisfaction in a job well done. And so we're not talking about, another one is, is that we, um, a type of pride that, that this is not speaking about is that when we, we gain esteem by identifying with something. Like uh, when you're in school, you have school pride. You ever heard of that? You go to pep rallies and you say, we're the Bobcats, the mighty Bobcats, right? And then you're like, and you wear the purple and you're all that kind of stuff. And, you know, if you're part of a sporting team and you walk out on the field and the other teams are, are quaking in their boots because they know you're coming to get them, that's a good kind of pride. Esteem, I'm part of this, right? The church should have esteem. We are the children of God. We should not be ashamed of the gospel, right? We, we have pride in that. So those are not bad kind of prides. We're not talking about the kind of pleasure of having a job well done or the satisfaction or esteem. This is not what we're talking about. Talking about the root kind of pride, which is self-worship. And that is really what pride is. It, when we come down to it, pride is, is the, the one that the Bible talks about. is it's, it's setting me on the throne of my heart and the center of my life, saying all things should, should work towards my benefit. Right? I'm the best. I know what's right. I'm going uh, to be... You know, on my own, I don't need other people, that kind of pride. It's, it's a form of self-worship, and we're going to see that in Scripture. Um, and that's the type of pride that we need to be careful of. 
In fact, that kind of pride is the first sin. In fact, it's the type of, of sin that all other sins come from. And so um, in that, we see that pride is a very deadly thing. And so instead of me telling you about it, let's go see it in Scripture. If you have your Bibles, I would like you to turn to Genesis chapter 3. And that's going to be on page 2. That means it's early on in the Bible. Okay? And in Genesis uh, chapter 3, as you turn there, um, let me catch you up. Into this. If, you, if you need a Bible, by the way, we've got plenty of them in the back. They look like this. You're welcome to them. If you need a Bible, you don't have one, you need a new one, uh, just take one, our gift to you. Um, but as you uh, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3, let me uh, just kind of a primer of what's happened so far. Genesis 1 is the big picture of how God made things. Right? It starts with nothing, and by the end, we have all things that are made. Genesis 2, chapter 2, is kind of a focus, is like a spotlight on how he made humans. He kind of really gives, goes into detail, where Genesis 1 kind of is an overview. Genesis 2 talks about our origins. Really kind of cool. Genesis 3 is it talks about how we came from that perfection and being the, the pinnacle of God's creation, right? How do we start being, everything being perfect to where we are today? How did it get broken? And so it's called the fall, um, which is interesting. We talk about pride comes before a fall and how true it is. And so this is the story of humanity's destruction. And it, so it's, it's a really warm, warm and fuzzy passage. Um, so hopefully you're there by now. Let's talk. I'm going to read it for you. You can see what happened. It says now, starting in verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree in the middle of the garden. You must not even touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat it from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit was of the tree was good for food and pleasing for the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized that they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And thus, the destruction began. The poison was taken. Now, this is an interesting uh, story because it's not the way that we would think of it. It's not some, like, big story, like this, you know, this mighty rebellion where Adam and Eve were in the garden, like, hiding behind some oak tree saying, all right, when God comes, you trip him and I'm going to choke him. Something like that. Like, we would think like a rebellion. It's not how humanity fell. It fell through a much more subtle thing. It was a fruit salad. We died from a fruit salad. Humanity. Think about that. How humble our destruction really began. We were poisoned. And we didn't see it. We didn't see it coming. And so we look at this and we think to ourselves, oh, this doesn't seem very climactic. But boy, did it have consequences. It was silent. It was wicked. And it didn't seem like much. Just a piece of fruit. But as we read from the Word, we see that it wasn't just a piece of fruit. It wasn't just an apple. It was a tree from, it was a fruit from, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. There was something powerful about that fruit. And we see that, that it says that they took the fruit not just because it looked good, but it was, it was good for gaining wisdom. Did you read that? Good for gaining knowledge. In fact, the devil in this, I always say that the devil lied. He didn't really lie. 
I mean, he said, she said, if, if I touch that tree, you will die. And Eve, maybe Adam told her that, hey, don't even touch that, you'll die or something. But she, she said, if I touch it, I'll die. And the Satan said, you're not going to die. And you're not going to die immediately if you eat it. Not a total lie. In fact, then he told her the truth. If you eat that, you're going to be like God, knowing both good and evil. You know, sometimes the worst lies of the enemy are subtle truth with a twist. Then be careful of that. He, he tricked us. And he was right. They took the fruit because they wanted to be like God. That's pride. Right? How, in what ways did they want to be like God? Was it they're going to have his, his immutable attributes, so they're going to be all places all at once and all that kind of stuff? No. This was what they were going to have. They wanted to be able to, to determine for themselves what was good and what was evil. To create their own morality. See, up until this point, Adam and Eve, they disagreed with God. He said, hey, this something is good. They're like, fine, it's good. We agree with you. It is good. And if he said it's bad, they would be like, we agree with you. It's bad. And the morals back then, it was just the one commandment. It was don't eat from that tree. That was pretty easy. All right? And it was very simple for them. But they wanted to have their ability to choose for themselves what was right, to be like God in this way, to create their own commandments. And ever since that fateful day, humans have been writing our own commandments ever since, haven't we? And it's not that we just appoint somebody, hey, you write the commandments for me. We all write our own commandments, don't we? There are all kinds of times where I'll say, this is right. And, and you'll say, no, no, I disagree with you. This is what is right. And then we have a little holy war, right? And we do all kinds of horrible things to each other. We'll say, uh, my morality is the right morality and your morality is the wrong morality. So it's okay for me to destroy you because you're immoral. That's what we do. But what gives me the right to say what is right? That was the poison of Eden. Look what's happened in the world ever since then. How many wars have we fought? Because there are two sides, both are believing that they are totally in the right, destroying one another. How many marriages have been destroyed with two parties believing that they are totally in the right, destroying one another? How many friendships have been destroyed because you have two people who totally think that they are in the right and then they, they disagree and so they totally destroy one another? We are at war day and night with one another because we don't have one law. We have like nine billion laws in the world right now. And none of us always agree on anything. Right? That's why uh, when we go to like Thanksgiving, it's so fun. Right? This is the problem. And it starts with me thinking that I am the lawgiver. That's pride. It's to know good apart from God, to create our own ethics. That is the very root of where pride begins, and then if we see, then that's where the root of all sin begins, isn't it? Why is it that we have anger? Right? Isn't it because somewhere in my heart, or we murder somebody because I say in my heart, you know what, it's okay for me to hate that person when God said it's not? And I'll say, no, I disagree with God, I'm going to hate that person, and so then we have murder. Or how about envy? Where does the root of envy come in? God says, you know, I'm going to give you enough and, and we're going to care for you. And then all of a sudden I say, no, I believe that I don't have enough. And the law of my heart is that I, I should have more. And therefore I can want that thing and I can be angry with another person because they have it. Every sin in, in the entire scope of humanity comes back down, boils down to this. We think we're God and we play him. It's pride. It is so damaging. Real people die all the time because of this. 
Pride says, I know what's best. Right? That's the, that's the heart of pride. I know what's best. And if the Bible agrees with me, fantastic. Then I'm going to do what the Bible says. And if you agree with me, that's great. We'll get along. But if anybody disagrees with me, even God, they are wrong. I am right. I'm going to do what I want. Pride also says, you must serve me. Doesn't it? Because gods deserve to be served, do they not? And if, certainly, if you know best... Then the rest of humanity, when we disagree with you, we need to step up and, and straighten out and get in line because you know best. And I know best. And so I expect if you are wrong, I might have a friendly debate with you, but if you don't agree with me, at some point I'll write you off or I'll fight you. We have this expectation that truly at the core, I know what's right and you need to serve me and my expectations. And if you don't meet my expectations, now you've sinned against me. And there will be consequences. We all do this. But you know, pride goes to the next level too. It says this, God must serve me. Doesn't it? It says that I know what's best in my life. My kingdom should come and my will should be done in heaven as much as it is on earth. Right? And if God doesn't do what I want God to do, then I can get mad at God and I can judge God and condemn God. Now, we don't particularly do this as direct as I say that right now, but actually we do it all the time, and I'm the worst. No, we judge God all the time because he didn't fulfill my expectations. I mean, even like little things. Like last week, I, I, uh, my, my parents were gone, and we were taking care of their house. They let us use their car. We took it down to a, a conference because it was a snowy day, and it was great. And, uh, and so I brought it back, and I get gas in the car. So I take it to Safeway. And, and Safeway parking because I had some points. I didn't want to pay full price for my parents' gas. So I'd saved them up. And so I'm going to pay for gas. And I pull in and all of the, the little gas station stalls are filled except for one. And it's on the wrong side for me to fill up the tank. Right? So I wait ever so patiently. Right? And so I'm waiting. And then finally, another one clears out. And the rest of them fill up. And I pull in and I get out. And guess what? Her gas tank fills on the other side. <laughs> And you know the first thing I did was? I looked to heaven and I said, Really? Like God should serve me on where I'm going to fill my gas tank. It's amazing how often we do this. But I've seen brothers and sisters in, in, in Christ walk away from the faith, abandon it entirely because life didn't go the way that they thought it should. And they've said, God is just mean and he's awful and he doesn't care and he's not serving me and I've prayed and I've told him what to do and he's not doing it, so I'm leaving him. And they do. And oftentimes they don't even just leave God, but they try to take other people with them. We judge and condemn God all the time. And I think none of us really think about it when we do that, but I tell you because I was preaching this, this that when I was all of a sudden there was that conviction and I was like oh it's like you know what God did not come to serve just me oh he did come to serve but he didn't call me God Jesus didn't come to worship at my altar right God did not come to to make your kingdom a reality God came because his kingdom is a reality and he wanted to invite you in his kingdom come it was a difference in my prayer life when I began to understand this, when my wants and my lists from God stopped being demands and started being requests and saying, God, I don't even know what your kingdom looks like, but I want that. Because I know what my kingdom looks like, and I don't want that. 
But if I'm honest, typically I do want that. I just know in the end it's not going to work out. Pride is something that we have to all deal with. It's at the core of every human heart. Amongst any of these seven deadly sins, this is the one that all of us have taken that poison. All of us struggle with this. Every single one of us. And it affects all kinds of areas in our life. Look what James says in in his uh, great epistle. Chapter 4, he says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire but do not have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And you don't even ask because you don't ask God. And then it says, when you ask God, you don't get what you want because you ask with wrong motives. You're just telling God what you think is best. All of us do this. We play God in our own lives with every person that we come around with, don't we? When I meet somebody, I have something that I want to get from them, right? I have expectations from them. I have my way that I want things to be done. And if things aren't done that way, quarrels, fights, rage... Isn't it that way with you? That's why we have troubles in marriages. That's why we have troubles with friendships and, and with our coworkers and with our neighbors. But you know what Christianity is, it shows us? It's not really our dominion that we're supposed to be fighting for. There's a different way. Pride is so difficult because it's so insidious. It's in all of our lives and we don't even see it. It just comes so natural. It's like breathing air, isn't it? I just expect people to serve me. (laughs) And they just expect me to want to just lay down all of my desires to serve them. It's just part of who we are. But it leads to destruction. Remember that passage? I hope so because our memory verse. It says, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before fall. Pride leads to destruction. We have to really begin to own this. The Bible is not kidding. This idea that God should worship me, that people should worship me, that it should be my way or, or no way. That whole idea that I'm at the center and I know what's best and that you serve me and God serves me, that whole thing, that leads to destruction. I don't think we can know that, but oftentimes we don't believe it. But the evidence bears the opposite. Intellectually, when we choose pride, when I say, I know what's right, and if you disagree with me, you're wrong, that that Bible says that that lacks wisdom, doesn't it? Have any of us ever been born knowing how to do all of this perfect? No. No, you have not. Proof? Have you ever seen a toddler? Right? Can you imagine if there was a toddler who said to their parents, I know what's right, I know what's best, right? I don't need to listen to you. You tell me not to put my hand on that stove, but I'm going to do it anyway because I know what's best, right? You just keep me from fun, right? How long would that kid live, right? I think my son, I saved his life thousands of times a day for like the first 10 years, right? Like all the time. And he was a good kid. But he was like, hey, I think I want to climb up on this staircase and then see if I can bounce off the stairs. That sounds fun. Or like, oh, what are these things that look so delicious? You're like, that's rat poison. Don't do, right? All the time. All the time, just over and over and over. We are no different, right? Kids need parents and we need a Heavenly Father. We don't know what's best for us. I think we have to at least admit that. And just because we're more sophisticated in how we say it, because we have a couple decades behind our belt, doesn't mean that we really know what's best for us. The book of wisdom, Proverbs, starts out with this. It says... 
that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It starts with this, and we recognize that we don't know it all, and we trust that God does. That's where wisdom begins. That that itself is not just wisdom. It's the very first step into wisdom. When I say, I don't know, I think I know, I pretend I know, I have some really strong convictions about knowing, but God knows. And so when I disagree with God, I'm going to say that maybe he knows better than me. Now, wouldn't you all agree that God knows better than Aaron Dorman? Yeah, it's easy to say that, isn't it? Because you know me, right? Well, is it fair enough also to say that God knows better than you? Yeah. It's where it begins. Intellectually, we face destruction when we start with pride. If we ever want to gain wisdom, we have to start with the fact that God knows best. We need to choose a different way. Pride will kill us intellectually. Emotionally, it's the same way. Think about broken relationships that happen. Pride says, it's about me. This relationship's about me. It's about me getting something out of this, and if I'm not getting what I think that I should get out of this, then all of a sudden, there's going to be wrath, right? That you need to serve me, and if we disagree, then you better agree with me, right? You have to change your way. It's my way, my kingdom. How many relationships are destroyed because of this? Because you have two people with two different kingdoms who have two different sets of priorities, and no one agrees, and so they just go to war. Emotionally, we have all kinds of broken relationships, Certainly in marriage, because it's a pretty incubator between parents and kids. We find it between friends. Certainly in the church, we have it, don't we? We have our desires and our ways, and if you don't agree, well, then watch out. And that's why in Scripture, God is ruthless in this. He just says, if you have a problem with somebody, fix it. Resolve the conflict and come to me and fix it on my terms. Emotionally, we face all kinds of destruction in our life, all kinds of troubles, and we, a lot of times we think the problem is with that other person. Rarely do we understand the problems with pride in both of us. How about physically? Pride brings destruction physically in a very catastrophic way. Think of how many wars have been fought in this life because you have two sets of uh, groups saying, we know what's right and we're going to demand that you do that. We're going to force you to it or destroy you in the process. Real wars all over the world because of this. But it's not just the wars that happen. Think about murder, that that passage we said. You want what you don't have, so you get angry. Sometimes we actually commit. People commit real murder, kill people. Now, I would say death is a very serious physical condition, right? That's bad. Real people die and get maimed and get beat up and do all kinds of things because of this. But I think pride also leads to more subtle physical ailments. Think of all of the diseases that we could end if people would just agree with God and follow his ways. Right? If we just said, you know what? God, your standards are right, and we would follow your way, then there would be no all kinds of different diseases that we could get rid of. Starting with, think of the AIDS epidemic. Right? Think of all these other things. I know, they got real still when I said that. It's true. If we followed God and we said, God... We're going to trust that your, your standard of purity is right. Not my way because I know what I feel. But if we just followed it, we could end all kinds of suffering. But instead, we pretend we know what's right and we spend millions and billions of dollars while people suffer and die. Physical suffering because of pride. Spiritually, it's the worst. Pride leads to spiritual death, doesn't it? When I refuse to bend a knee to God... I can, serve, I can make my own way to heaven, thank you very much. I'm good enough. I'm better than most people, so therefore you need to let me in. 
right? I'm righteous. I don't need you, Jesus, and I don't need your rules. I'm going to find my own way. And God, it's about my kingdom, so you can be on my side if you want. That leads to spiritual death. And we wonder when we do that why our lives fall apart, when we get so angry with God all the time, and we have the separation because we think God should be serving me, and when my life gets difficult and I face struggles and trials and, and I have financial troubles and health and all kinds of other things, and I get mad at God and I say, you're not doing what I told you to do, right? And so then God faces our wrath, and then we wonder why we have all this darkness and bitterness and despair. Pride. It's not about us. That's the most beautiful thing. God did not come to sign up for my religion. I love that. He didn't pray, Lord, my will be done. He taught us to pray in a whole new way. Pride results in destruction. It's a deadly thing. Fortunately, it's not the end. See, Christ cures pride with something in a way that we never thought it could be cured with. I I love how Jesus works. He takes all the ways that we think life ought to operate and he says, nope, and turns them upside down and says, I'm still God. Right? It's how he does it. See, oftentimes when we talk about pride in the church, we forget the second half. And then we all get stuck in just guilt, right? Because we all suffer with pride, right? We all do. In fact, sometimes we get stuck so much in pride, we say, I'm the most prideful of all people, right? And then we do that with one another, and and we fight for that, right? We are so broken, and God cures us. And the way he cures us is an entirely different way than you're ever going to find in any pop literature book, right? No psychology is going to originally just kind of point you to this direction. This is so countercultural. It is amazing. And Jesus talked about it 2,000 years ago, and then he demonstrated and he proved that it works. This is amazing stuff. But it's not the way that people, we think, things should work. It's the way his kingdom works. So what I do, I want to invite you to to not just listen to me. Let's see what the scripture has to say. Turn to Philippians chapter 2. And uh, as you're turning there, we're going to start reading in uh, chapter 2. I'm going to start with verse, uh, well, verse 1. Why not? It's a good verse. He says, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from His love, if any common sharing of the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, like basically if, if you're a Christian at all, it says this, Then make my joy complete by being like-minded having the same love, being of the same spirit and of one mind. Do you realize how difficult that is? Like right there. It's like, you're a Christian. Here's the thing. Uh, Stop trying to have it your way. Let's all agree on a different way. Let's be like-minded. And I guess whose way that is. And he goes on. So then he says, all right, so in that, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in the appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And that wonderful verse 9, Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Isn't that awesome? You can read that passage and not get goosebumps. It's just powerful. Think about what God did. He, he, he came and he destroyed the original sin in such the opposite way. Jesus had the right to come down in power. It said that even though he had the nature of God, he didn't consider the equality of something to be used to his advantage. You know that Jesus could have showed up like Thor, right? Like, like a lightning bolt and was like, boom, superpower, you know, superhero landing with the knee and the fist and the ground like shatters around him. He could have done that right next to Nero or whoever, the Caesar. Go, boom, he could have just showed up. Be like, boom, I'm God, right? And what do people say? You're like, well, I guess you are, right? He could have walked up to the Caesar and took his crown and punched him in the face and said, this is my kingdom now. He could have done it. He's right. He could have just like opened up the skies and his angels like start showing up and like, boom, 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 boom. The kingdom has now mine, right? He could have done this. He could have showed up with his power in all the ways that we would expect God to show up. In, in all of that, and, and he would be perfectly right to do so. He could have destroyed our pride by humiliating us. That's what he could have done. But he didn't. Look how Jesus destroys pride. Look at that passage. It's so cool. He shows up as a nobody. I mean, he's God. He created everything, and he shows up in this pregnant gal on the run, right, basically, trying to go to a place to pay taxes in the worst of circumstances where there's not even room for him. Nobody knows about him. Grows up in obscurity in a little nowhere village to a dad and a mom that people are like, eh. I mean, he, he didn't receive the honor. He would go, can you imagine being God and showing up at synagogue? Like just sitting there and as they're reading this kind of stuff and then listening to some rabbi talk about it and be like, well, actually what I meant was, right? Because I'm sure he's the one who wrote it. And think about how difficult and yet just to be humble. Jesus came not as we deserved, but as we needed. He came as one of us. He humbled himself. And in that passage, it starts by saying this, If we have Christ and we've enjoyed the benefits that he gives us, joy, peace, love, then let's make joy complete by treating one another like that. See, pride seeks to exalt the self, doesn't it? Pride says, I know what's best. It's all about me. But humility lifts up others. When Jesus came here, he did not come and exalt himself at all. He laid himself down, but he lifted us up. So you were my enemies, and now you could be my children. That's a pretty big lift up. Pride values the self, but humility is totally different. It values others, and that's what it says in the Scripture. Don't look to your own needs, but look to the needs of other people. That's what we're supposed to do, because Jesus looked at our needs. Jesus did not need to come down and die. He was perfectly fine in heaven. Heaven was not going to be, you know, thrown off kilter if we didn't show up. Right? He came for us. He came because of our needs. And we get to serve others. It's not about just my kingdom. It's me looking into your life and saying, what do you need? And actually doing something about it. See, pride serves selfishly, doesn't it? 
If I serve somebody in pride, I'm doing it to build myself up, to build my reputation and to do things like this, right? But humility serves selflessly. Humility looks for the people who can't pay you back and serves them still. The people that are difficult and loves them still. Because you know what? We can't pay God back and he still served us. And we've been pretty difficult to love, if we're honest, and he loves us still. We have an example in Christ that is powerful, what he's done for us. And so it says in this passage, listen, if God can overcome pride with humility, follow his example. And he shows us that example in a wonderful way. And it says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. That's something the scripture tells us to do, not because it's possible, but because it's impossible. You can't do it on your own. You're poisoned with pride. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. That's the joy that we get to have. We can live in a whole new way that no one else has the privilege of living. I can actually, with God's help, be able to say, you know what, not my will be done. I want to have the same mindset as Christ. I want to love people that are difficult to love. I want to forgive people who don't deserve it because I have been loved and forgiven. Right? I want to share even in poverty because Jesus shared in poverty. Right? I want to find joy even in adversity because I know that there's something greater because of what Christ has done. I can begin to have a mindset like Christ. It's a transformation of renewing of our mind, the scripture talks about. And it starts when we begin to bow our knee to God and say, your way, not mine. I'm going to trust you. One thing I love about theology is it gives you into some really interesting areas when you begin thinking about it. And I was thinking about this passage for about a, about a month. And, uh, and thinking about God and the very nature of Christ and that he is perfect, right? Like he's always perfect. And, and, I, and I read some things, different stories and stuff like that from early church fathers and things like this who also wrestled with this. And, and the idea that Jesus is 100% perfect, which means that the way that he revealed himself to us was 100% perfect. He lived a perfect life, a sinless life. He demonstrates things for us. Well, if the character is the nature of Jesus that he shows us is the right way of living. And that Jesus could not have been prideful because he's perfect. It's impossible for God to be prideful. For starters, because he's truly God. If God puts himself on the throne, that's the right thing to do. Right? So it's impossible for me to be prideful. But the other part of it is saying this, that the way that God shows humility, that is a right and a good way. It's not like we'll go to heaven and all of a sudden Jesus is going to have a totally different character. Right? He's the same Jesus. Which is amazing to me because he is king of kings and lord of lords. And we see pictures in Revelation and Daniel where he shows up in power and people like fall down like we're dead and all that kind of stuff. He's so amazing. Same heart. Same love. Same character. Same kingdom there as he's building here. That's pretty cool. See, Jesus chose humility because it was right. He chose humility so that we could be saved. And so we have the privilege of following Christ's example. The privilege and choosing humility. Now humility is a cool thing. It is the way to greatness, isn't it? Think about this. Oftentimes we get to that first part of the first half of this uh, passage and then we, we end. We're like, we have to choose humility. And then, and so Jesus then he dies for us, right? And we stop there. But we don't go to the last part. Because the last part's the best part. He laid himself down for us. And then what does it say? Verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him. Lifted him up. Every knee should bow, every tongue confess. How did he raise to the highest level of greatness? 
by taking on the lowest form of humility. He sets an example. I think we have to understand this. Our lives are not about this life, right? I'm not living for today as a Christian. I'm living for eternity. I live forever. There is something amazing that we find. You want to be great in the kingdom? There's a call to humility. Look what Jesus says about this to his disciples. Matthew 20, leading up to this, he's got some disciples, and they're saying this. How do I become great in the kingdom? Because they have Jesus. Say, hey, boss, we want to be like number one, number two, and vice president. We want to be big and powerful. How do we do it? Right? And Jesus says, all right, look at the leaders of this world. Right? When they have authority, what do they do? They lord it over people and tell them what to do and to fit into their agenda. Not so with you, he says. Whoever wants to become great amongst you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He tells us how to do it. He, he shows us how to do it. He says, listen, humility is the way to greatness. It, we find it all the way through the Bible. It's an amazing thing. When we lay ourselves down, great things are waiting. And here's the difference. A lot of times we say in all these books that you'll read that tells you how to do self-help and all this, they'll say, don't lay yourself down, you'll be railroaded, right? People, you'll be taken advantage of. You'll have things taken from you and you won't have the things that you think that you want and your dreams will go away and somebody else will get them. They'll tell you this. And why? Because that actually happens. In this life, there will be a cost to following Jesus. I want to be very crystal clear in that. Jesus was too. He said, count the cost. This is not the ticket for an easy ride. He said, it's a narrow gate and it's hard. There is going to be a cost of faithfulness. There are going to be happinesses in this life that you will not be able to experience because you were faithful. That's what it says. You're going to face hardship because you were righteous. When you follow God's ways, it's not always for your immediate benefit. There are pleasures that you will forego. You're going to have to die to those. There are going to be goals and dreams in your life that you're going to have to put on the altar and say, God, not my dreams, but yours. And wasn't it Jesus who the night before he was crucified was in the garden with blood coming down and sweat and through tears saying, God, if there's any other way, but you know what? Not my way, but yours be done. In our life, we have to be willing to do that. And not Jesus' way led him to a brutal execution. Realize this, the church does not exist to make your life easy. God did not come to make your life easy. You will go through trouble. You will. And it doesn't mean he doesn't like you. It means it's not your kingdom. And he's going to ask you to sacrifice things that you desperately and dearly think that you want and and deserve. You have to die to yourself. You have to die because it is the cure to pride. You have to say, not my way, God, yours. It's not an easy task. That's why we need one another encourage it. But I'll tell you this, that is not the whole story. Because when I lay myself down, when I face that death, I find that I've been living for the wrong things anyway. When I humble myself, there is a greatness that God builds into me in my life. He frees me from the poison of pride. And he makes me great. Will I be taken advantage of? All the time. Guess what God does? He exalts me. There is a bigger thing that I'm living for and that you are living for. And he calls us to and he says, take the path, take the sacrifice. It is worth it. If you die, you're going to find real life. But you have to trust him that that real life is really on the other side, which is why I'm so grateful that we have Jesus as an example. He didn't just say, trust me, I rose again. He showed up for 40 days and said, I'll eat with you because ghosts can't eat, right? 
He did all kinds of amazing things. We know that it works. Find greatness. Greatness does not come through pride, but through humility. And he calls us through it. James says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. How true. We know it because it's in the Bible, but I think oftentimes we don't know it. Do we? Believe it. Live it. That's the life he calls us to. Lay yourself down. Live through the difficult things. Endure the storm, knowing he's God in the midst of it, and he will raise you up. At his time, when he's done doing the great things he's causing to happen in this world through you, he will raise you up, because he's a loving and a great father. He didn't come to make your life miserable. He came that you would have life, and have it more abundantly. So follow him. Trust him. Humble yourselves before God. He'll lift you up. There's that greatness principle, right? We find through scripture, you want to be great, serve greatly? That's the challenge. If we want to be followers of Christ, we need to follow Christ. We need to sacrifice ourselves for the kingdom of God, knowing that the kingdom of God has room in it for us. It's a resurrected and a new life and a whole better way of living. Follow Christ. So as we bring this message to the close, this first one, what do we learn when we talk about pride, this horrible, deadly sin? It leads to destruction. It leads to destruction. We need to tell ourselves that over and over. We need to remind each other of that all the time because it is so deeply ingrained. That poison needs to be rooted out. Get this, that humility leads to greatness. Greatness in kingdom, greatness in life, greatness in hope, greatness in purpose. Humility is where it's at. So together we need to choose humility. All right, so then how do we apply this? I know it's a difficult thing. I've got some ideas. Take out your connection card on the back side. I have some ideas, some next steps for us. I'll tell you, there's a great joy in these things. If we look on the back side there, it says, this week I commit to the first thing. I'm going to challenge us if any of you, for you to memorize is this. Psalm 1618. Pride comes before a fall. We need to know that. Tattoo it on your heart, right? Remember this because we are prideful all the time. And it's not just me thinking I'm the best. It's me thinking it's my way is the best. Allow God's word to become part of your very spiritual DNA. Spend time with it this week. How about this? Why don't you read the book of Ruth? Why, Ruth? There are a lot of stories in Scripture that talks about humility leading to greatness because it's a principle we see in Scripture. This is how it works. But my, one of my favorites is the book of Ruth. She, here's, here's a woman of amazing faith. Here's somebody that, that's worthy of following is Ruth. She is phenomenal. Out of nowhere, didn't have a Jewish heritage, anything like this, right? Didn't have the kind of hope that we have. Everything in life taken away, right? Everything robbed what she thinks should be done the way that she thinks it should be done. And that there's a crucial moment in her life when she could go back and abandon her, her mother-in-law and choose her own way and have, have the life that she thought she deserved. Instead, she said, you know what? I'm going to serve you, Naomi. I'm going to serve you. Humility. And because of her humility, she actually gets to be in the lineage of David. She gets to be in the lineage of, of Jesus. Here's a name that we would have forgotten throughout history. You never would have heard of Ruth if she chose pride, but she chose humility, and we name our daughters after her, even to this day. You want to read a real story about a real woman who chose humility and how it works out in the real world? Read Ruth. It's an amazing book. Or maybe this. Maybe this week you need to examine your heart. Don't be afraid of what you're going to find. Let me just, I'll, I'll give you a spoiler alert. You're going to find pride. That's what you're going to find. You're going to find other things too. That's okay. God loves you. His, his grace is, is good enough. He, he'll take it. He'll forgive you and he'll help you. But maybe you need to be brave enough to say, God, I trust in your grace enough. I'm going to examine my heart. How do I do that? When things irritate you this week, think about why they irritated you. 
right? When somebody makes you upset, think about why am I getting so upset, right? When you irritate somebody else, think about maybe how you treated them. Look in your heart. What was your motivation? What was your attitude? Was it about your way? That's a great thing. Or maybe this week, maybe you can have a ministry interview. Why? Because greatness comes in serving greatly. If you've been part of this church for any bit of time and you are not serving, you're not actively serving because you're a Christian. And it doesn't mean that you're serving in the church. Most people that we have in our church actually are serving on their front lines where they're serving at. But if you're not serving the Lord intentionally right now, you're missing out. Jesus said he came to serve. And so if you don't have a place that you're serving, this is not to give you guilt, this is to give you an opportunity. That the church exists to support you. It's my job and my joy to be able to equip you for the areas that you are supposed to serve, that God has already called you to. And if you don't know where those are at, or you're not helping, we're not uh, communicating and the church isn't able to support you, then you've kind of been on your own. I'll tell you, one of the great ways to get by that is to have a ministry interview. Say, listen, I want to get in there. We could talk about who you are and how God made you and what your purpose is. We'll help you connect with your, with your ministry. We'll be able to support you and pray for you. We'll help you evaluate things as things go on. It's amazing how God works in our life when we start working for him. It really is. And so maybe if you're not serving, this is the challenge to start serving. And maybe start with a ministry interview. So if you can um, check that, you need to give me your contact information because I'm not clairvoyant. Okay? You don't need to like, stone me or anything. So... Uh, so make sure that I can contact you and we'll get together and we'll talk about who you are, your passions, where you're serving, and we'll help you connect. All right, maybe there's something else that you need to commit to. Maybe this morning you're here and you've never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. The challenge for you, the, the next step for you is a, is a step of life. You need to stop pride. You are not your own God and you're not going to be your own Savior. There is a God who loves you. There's a Savior who will save you fully. And it's not an easy path, but it's a great path and it leads to life. And if that's you and you need to make those steps, what I want you to do on the back here says, I'd like more information starting a relationship with Jesus. And give me your contact information. Because I want to talk to you. I'm sure you have questions. We want to make sure that you understand what this is. And when you're ready to take steps of faith, we'll help you take those steps of faith as a church and a family and you will have tons of support. Uh, but don't let anything stop you from making that commitment if that's what you need to make. If you have a prayer request, please let us know. One of the ways I love to serve you is praying for you. In a minute, we're going to take our offering. As we take our offering, please take these connection cards, put them in the offering basket. And, uh, well, let's just pray for all of those right now. Heavenly Father, thank you for you and your love and your kindness and your goodness and your mercy. Father, that uh, says, I love that song where we just sang that you know the hearts of men and still you let us live. How true. You are so good. Let us be good, Father. From the inside out, Father, help us to lay down our pride these silly notions that we know what's right and we know what's best. Father, give us the clarity of thinking to recognize that you do know what's best and you do know what's right so we can trust you. Father, lead us through all the battles of life and the storms that will come. Let us trust you as a church. Father, for those commitments that have been made today, help us to keep those, not as a way of building a sense of of uh, self-entitlement or anything like this or, or pride. But Father, help us to keep these in a way that we get to lay our lives down for you and see your kingdom come in us and your will be done in our lives. Father, that's me, our prayer. I also pray for our tithes and our offerings that are being made right now. Father, maybe you use these for your glory that your kingdom would be built. Father, give our, our pastors, our finance team, our staff wisdom to know to invest these funds in your kingdom according to your priorities for your glory. Oh, we pray all of these things in the wonderful name of our Savior, Jesus. Amen.